interview special. I'm your host, David J. Murphy, and I'm joined for this interview by Seth Porges. Seth is a journalist who co-directed and produced the new HBO Max exclusive documentary, Class Action Park. This new documentary explores New Jersey's infamous Action Park, one of possibly the most insane and dangerous amusement parks in the world. As mentioned, the documentary will be premiering exclusively on HBO Max starting on August 27th. So if you're listening or watching this after that date, go check it out. In fact, we'll be deep diving into this documentary and exploring all aspects of the story. So if you want to go into the documentary fresh, which I recommend, stop the interview, go get a free trial of HBO Max if you're not already subscribed, watch it, and then come back to the interview. I think you'll enjoy it that much more. Okay, enough of that. Seth, thanks for taking time out today to talk about your documentary. First and foremost... I do appreciate it. Uh, first and foremost, though, let me ask you this. How cool is it to know that the documentary you've been working on for years will soon be out in the world for everyone to see? It's the best feeling there is. You know, like like you, you work on something and it just becomes an abstraction at some point. When you're staring at computers and you're talking to your collaborators and nobody else in the world can, can see what you're doing. I think it's somebody who is working on anything, whether it's a documentary or any, any, anything that is near and dear to them that the world hasn't seen, you just hope the world will see it. So that's getting out there in a way in which anybody pretty much who wants to see it can see it. Uh, I mean, if you can't see me, I'm a, I'm a little giddy. <laughs> no, actually, we can definitely hear it in your voice. I mean, especially now in this kind of day and age with COVID, I mean, are you guys even having like a physical premiere in a theater for this or is it just the premiere online? Well, we actually showed at a, a couple film festivals prior to the launch uh, this Thursday on HBO Max, uh, one of which actually was in a physical theater at the Florida Film Festival. Uh, we uh, ended up winning the Audience Award there, which was awesome. Uh, so, great. you know, I, I thought this would play well in a crowd. Um, it's good to know that's true. And we were playing a couple drive-ins as well. So okay. we just played one in Brooklyn uh, this past weekend, and that was amazing because a number of people who were featured in the film who worked at Action Park back in the day were there. And they had never seen, they had not seen the film yet. Uh, and they participated in the Q&A. And it was pretty amazing to see their responses. And it's, it's always interesting when somebody's in a movie and they haven't seen the movie, you know, how they yeah. feel they came out, how they feel they were portrayed. Yeah. And you never know. And you're always a little nervous. But they all loved it, best I could tell, you know. And, and I, they're, I think they got to feel like, like movie stars a little bit because it was, you know, a big drive-in setting. There's a lot of yeah. people out there. They're to some degree sort of like the closest thing you have to a movie star in a documentary. No, absolutely. And it's funny to see kind of this resurgence of the drive-in movie theater, you know, sort of as a result of COVID. It's like, I wonder if we'll see this catch on and there might be more new drive-in theaters. Who knows? Uh, but hopefully we'll get through the COVID situation soon and people can go to actual theaters again. Um, you know, I've, I've done a few uh, short films myself and premiered them in front of an audience do you think the audience reacted the way like you thought they would in terms of did they react at the point you thought, oh, that'll get a big reaction or that'll get a big laugh? Did you see that or did they even surprise you about how they reacted? Well, the thing about driving is you have no idea how oh, yeah, people are reacting because they're all, <laughs> you know, everybody's in their yeah. cocoon of a car. Uh, so so the, what you, what you want to do then is open your windows, uh, maybe do a little stroll around the parking lot oh, yeah. and kind of listen first listen for isolated sounds uh but what a distortion that is so so you really have no idea when you play in a drive and how the crowd is reacting uh but um i i <laughs> i hope they liked it uh you know we did play one one uh, actual sit down theater i said for the florida film festival in florida and we zoomed into the theater after for the q a could not be there in person and uh the crowd you know, I actually, I spoke to some of the people who were at the screening, kind of asked them after I wanted to know, mm. how did the crowd react? Did, they, did yeah. they like it? Did they seem to be along for the ride? And, I mean, maybe he was just being nice to me, but it seemed like they did. It's always a little game of operator when you're asking other people how, how, how an audience liked your movie. Right, right. They want to give you the best answer, right? Oh, yeah, no, no, yeah, no. Exactly. They, they booed, <laughs> and they left halfway through. It was, it was brutal. It was good. 
Yeah, or or like a nice. It was it was good. It was good. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. They, they uh, loved. Yeah, it, they, they, it was definitely a film that people looked at on the screen for sure. It was feature length. It was definitely yeah. a feature length movie. <laughs> I think I saw somebody wrote like a cats thing, and it was like this was definitely a film that came out in 2019 with actors. It was a plot. movie. It was a movie. I mean, uh, I tell well, you, it's it's hard to get a movie made, and and it's 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 no small feat even getting a, a bad movie made. So right. I'm yeah, absolutely. In no position to, yeah. You kind of wonder how bad movies get made when it's so hard to get a good movie made. You know, it's like uh, <laughs> how does that even happen? I mean, I think there's a lot of podcasts that explore that very question, <laughs> I think. But uh, I think that, that's part of the what makes Hollywood so interesting is, is, the, is the process that gets these things from, from page to screen and, and, and what ends up there and, and how it can, despite it all, sometimes end up being kind of good. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I know from your bio on the Class Action Park website, you've got a very interesting background. You've worked... As an editor for Popular Mechanics, you appeared on a travel channel show called Mysteries of the Museum. You gave world record length speeches on nerdy issues, and you're a leading expert among, uh, among pinball. Uh, so a very lot, lots of cool things in your accolades there. Um, can you talk a little bit about your life yeah. growing up and kind of how you kind of came to the point where you are now as sort of a being involved in documentary films? Absolutely. So I, uh, you know, ever since I was in middle school and you know we had like a school paper all i really wanted to do was be a journalist you know i i I realized that there was something just so thrilling and so exciting about having an excuse to have people tell you their stories having an excuse to have people open up um you know giving giving people a reason to to tell things that they may not otherwise tell and and then to tell their stories uh consequently like that was thrilling to me absolutely absolutely thrilling uh, being a journalist it has its ups and downs uh there's some parts of being a jur- about being a journalist that stink that just absolutely stink but then there's some parts that are just like the highest high there is and when you can you know when you when you're in a room with somebody or on the phone with somebody and you know they're telling you something that they've never told anybody else before that's like that's a truly magical feeling and uh you know i spent most of my career as, as a magazine editor i worked at popular mechanics for a number of years and while i was at popular mechanics uh one of the cool things about a magazine like that is as long as a subject kind of somewhat fits into what the magazine is, which is all sorts of cool stuff, basically, you can write about whatever you want. And Popular Mechanics, you better believe weird roller coasters and amusement parks and rides sort of fit into it. And so when I was at Popular Mechanics, I sort of uh, didn't really carve out a full-time beat, but did a couple articles on the side just relate to amusement parks because I, so, I, I love them. You know, I grew up going to theme parks Disney, Universal, Six Flags, all of them. And then every once in a while, my family would go to Action Park. And it was very, very clear <clears throat> at a very young age that Action Park was very different from all of those others. And, and that story just really, really, really stuck with me. And so, you know, I, I, I worked as a magazine editor, and that that is a job description doesn't really exist anymore. <laughs> you know, it, it just the, the magazine world, unfortunately, is really not what it used to be. And, uh, you know, the journalists that, that survive are the ones who adapt and kind of figure out other platforms, and other forms of media and other ways to, to use their talents or skills or their passions to do things. And uh, fortunately for me, what I love to do, the thing about journalism that really that I love, it wasn't the writing. It was the it was the talking to people. It was the storytelling. And there's all sorts of other ways you can do that. And we live now in sort of a golden age of, of documentaries. Uh, and I feel fortunate that like we live in a world that 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 I kind of can slot in very nicely into from what I did and uh, and so I you know the first the first documentary project I was ever involved in in a well before I was involved with producing or directing anything you know I was I was on air for for many years on a number of TV shows as you mentioned I was on the show uh, Mysteries at the Museum on the Travel Channel probably did around 50 or 60 episodes of that show, enormous, enormous number of episodes. Uh, but I've been on a number of other shows in the History Channel and Nat Geo and Discovery, Science Channel, all those just nerdy shows that play at 2 in the morning when somebody flips on basic cable at their hotel room, probably going to see me talk about airplanes or something. And and, and I got the, the sense of how these shows were made and sort of the, the structure of them. Uh, and, uh, you know, I always had my own stories that I just thought were really interesting and really cool and really worth telling. And, uh, you know, I spent the past 
you know, several years really developing this one in particular. Uh, the the first my first kind of foray into this topic was 2000. I'd say like nine or so. I started writing a couple articles about it, gave a couple lectures about it. In 2013, I worked with uh, some great folks, Matt Robertson and Anthony Laser, to develop a, a short documentary about Action Park. And that was the one really, that came out in 2013. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that went quite viral. And it was it was really one of the first things that had delved into Action Park with the the eye of a journalist. I'll say. Uh, prior to that, there were all of these articles about this crazy, dangerous, extreme amusement park out there. There was a couple weird New Jersey articles. There was an amazingly readable Wikipedia page, which is probably the best thing on Wikipedia if you ever get bored. Uh, but but I was shocked at how few people had kind of done what you know my background as a journalist taught me to do, which is actually get on the phone and call people up and say, hey, is any of this true? What actually happened here? Um, and because of that, and because these stories were so interesting on their own, they kind of snowballed into urban legends and suburban legends and myths. And that really, I think, opened up this amazing opportunity to, to put the lens of journalism to all of these legends and just kind of see what the heck's true here. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. You, uh, I'm glad you mentioned the 2013 documentary because I checked that out and you know, I really wanted to kind of explore the differences and how you evolved it from the 2013 documentary to the 2020 documentary so can you talk to me a little bit about the genesis of the film like obviously you said it kind of was brewing before the short and then kind of how you you made the short and then how you you con converted that into the final feature film yeah so the short uh kind of began life as a lecture i gave uh an event in new york called nerd night i think a video of it's still somewhere <laughs> online and uh and and really you know i was it, it was it was just a really fun romp through this dangerous amusement park and all these legends, all these rumors. But even then, I wasn't doing any serious journalism. I wasn't doing what I just said, getting on the phone and calling people up and, and asking people what happened. Um, and so when I teamed up with these folks to, to make the short, and they reached out to me, uh, you know, these, these, uh, Anthony and, and Matt, after seeing uh, the video of my of my lecture, I, you know, we just did the basic thing you would expect somebody to do, which is find people who were involved with the story and actually talk to them. Uh, so we went out to the park, which is now called Mountain Creek in, in Vernon, New Jersey. And we ended up speaking to the son of the owner of the park, the president of the park, and then a number of people who uh, grew up going to the park as well. And we filmed that thing in, I want to say like three days, you know, it was just like some B-roll and a couple of interviews. It was a web video. It wasn't a huge ordeal. It wasn't a high production value thing. Um, but there was something about the way people were describing their stories. There was something about the way they were telling their stories and going to this park that was just captivating. Uh, it was this mix of, of like glee and regret. You know, people who grew up going to Action Park, they'll, they'll show off their scars as a badge of honor, as a rite of passage. They're, they're proud of it. And people who went there don't shy away from many elements of the dark truth of it. You know, people will simultaneously, like in one breath, say, this was the most fun, magical, amazing place on the planet. And the next breath say, we should never have been allowed to go there. That place was absolutely dangerous. I saw, I saw horrible things. And that, that, that weird tension uh, ended up being hilarious. You know, it is like dark gallows humor. And not in a way that I felt was disrespectful to any of the victims or the people who were injured there. It, you begin to realize that the humor that comes from a place like Action Park is so interesting and so compelling because it's it's kind of like a coping mechanism. It's it's you know it's something we as humans do is we we attach humor to darkness as a way of dealing with it. And you see that on display with Action Park so vividly and so clearly that you just kind of can't turn away. And uh, so we made, made this short, we put it out there, and it ended up going very viral, uh, beyond our wildest expectations, because of a, a very specific reason. And that is that a huge number of people grew up going to Action Park, had these stories, had seen these things, water slides that went in complete loops, machines that made no physical sense, bodies flying off hills, injuries happening directly in front of them. Everybody who went there saw something like that happen. Years later, they'd tell people, oh my goodness, you'll never believe this amusement park I went to as a kid. And the stories were so outlandish that people just simply would not believe them. And eventually, enough people don't believe your stories, you begin <laughs> to sort of doubt yeah. them yourself. And that began, yeah. became, I realized that was sort of the shared experience of growing up going to Action Park, was having outlandish stories that nobody would believe. 
which is why it kind of became this urban legend, but not really because it was all true. It became something yeah. people thought was an urban legend, but was actually was actually for the most part true. And like, how can it the, actually the, the be viral, that bad, right? That's kind yeah, of yeah, I think. exactly. And so the short ended up going kind of viral because people were finally like, oh, here's proof. You know, it's <laughs> yeah. like they, they would send it to their spouses saying, here, I told you I was telling you the truth. You know, it, it was really like New Jersey Facebook is where it really ended up blowing up. Um, and it ended up causing uh, the park to briefly change its name back to Action Park from Mountain Creek in order to basically cash in on the nostalgia. They realized that. Uh, instead of sort of running from this this reputation and this heritage and this pedigree of being a dangerous place, there's something they might actually want to lean into. Yeah. Well, you know, I think it's it's good that you mentioned the the trying to balance the darkness of the park with also the lightness. And that's one of the things in watching the film that I saw, you know, you as kind of creators were trying to balance because it's not an easy story to tell, right? I mean, it's not just the story about the life and times of the park's creator, Eugene Mulvihill. And it's not just recounting the fun and memorable times about those who visited, but there's a good chunk that's about the pain and despair that it caused, especially the one particular family that you had on to talk about, you know, the loss of, uh, you know, the woman's son and the, the guy's brother. I mean, that's that was a really heartbreaking story to hear. And, you know, it made me think, like, how did you balance this sort of really downer parts of the story with the, you know, trying to the, the more light part? Because for, for the majority of the film, it's just basically your typical, I would say not typical, but it, again, it's more of like, you know, Life and Times creator. Oh, look at all these cool parks. You know, oh, yeah, I skipped my knee. But then you're like, OK, now we're going super dark with this part. And not only, you know, that part, how did you balance that? But also, did you have anyone else? You know, obviously, more than one person died. Did you did you try and explore other families that also lost someone? Sure. Um, I'm, I'm really glad you, you asked the question there. It's That was probably the biggest challenge in structuring this film, is how do you allow Action Park to be this wild, crazy, oftentimes hilarious, incredibly absurd place, while, both, while, while recognizing that it was a place that some people got seriously hurt or even killed at. And what we realized, I think, is that they can coexist. You know, like, that's what makes Action Park interesting. If it was just a funny place, it would be funny, but, you know, not that interesting. If it was just a dangerous or dark place, it would be dangerous and dark, but actually not that terribly interesting. We wanted to make a movie that caused you to laugh, that caused you to feel nostalgia, that caused you to, to feel good, and then a couple minutes later make you question what you were just feeling. You know, this is a movie that is in, intentionally kind of a little bit challenging. It's, it's designed to make you feel uncomfortable. It's a movie that's designed to make you feel uncomfortable and designed to make you feel a little bit complacent. Because you spend the first hour of the movie, we hope, having a really good time, laughing. And then we want you, we don't want you to walk away and say, like, okay, I'm allowed to laugh at this place that, that hurt people without any consequences. Like, you need to feel some level, if you're going to laugh, you have to feel, you have to understand, what, like, the dark side of it. You're allowed to laugh at Action Park, but you have to acknowledge that it also hurt people. And uh, we wanted people to question, question their own laughter. It was really, I think, a, a goal of this movie. And I, I, I fully expect a lot of people are not going to enjoy that experience. It's, it's designed to make you feel uncomfortable. It's designed to be hard. It's designed to be challenging. It's designed to put you through um, a kind of steep emotional roller coaster. Is what it does. And um, maybe and like I a roller coaster the, you know, with a little loop at the end of it, perhaps. Exactly. Designed <laughs> designed to put you designed to put you through a loop. Uh, because I think one of the problems with the way Action Park's been treated as a subject is that people tend to just focus on the hilariousness of it. This absurdity that it's amazing this place actually existed. Holy crap, I would go back there tomorrow, right? And you're allowed to feel all of that. You're allowed to laugh at it. And we found this, the people who are laughing the most about Action Park are the people who suffered there, the people who got injured, the people who grew up going there or working there. It's a place that they credit as, as molding them into the person they became. And we realize that the laughter is, maybe it is to some degree coming from outsiders who had nothing to do with it or looking at it and viewing it as hilarious, but the people who lived it are, are giving us permission to laugh. They're the ones who suffered through it, and they're laughing at it. I think that gives us permission to laugh. But we then need to understand the dark side of that. You can't laugh and then turn it off. You have to 
laugh and then uh, and then feel something as a result of that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think had it you wanted to, you could have made a very dark documentary that just focused on the death and the yep. injury and stuff like that. Because again, there's a lot of it, right? And you know, this the, you know, the creator, uh, you know, I mean, he's praised in the film, but he's also you know very much derided and you know saw as as an evil person. But ultimately, he created a place that caused people death and injury, right? And that has he has to yeah, account for that, you know, so to speak. And I think you did a great job in doing that in the film. Um, did you? Uh, what do you ultimately want people to take away from their viewing of Class Action Park? You know, is there something like a call to action, or is it just meant to be a informative and educational uh, piece of documentary content? You know, it. I don't want to tell people what to feel after watching this movie. I think it's a movie that's designed in such a way that a good number of people are going to walk away and thinking, thinking something along the lines of, oh, kids today are coddled. Things were better back then. Uh, my childhood was awesome. We didn't have, like, helicopter parents. We were running around. We were going on these, it was like the Goonies. We were going on these amazing adventures. Action Park was the best place in the world. And then a number of other people are going to watch it and go, how the heck was that thing allowed to exist? That should never have existed. And what we found is, you know, at the drive-in and the very few screenings we've done and the people we've showed it to, it really does kind of spark this debate where people, some people walk away thinking Gene Mulva Hill was the biggest villain in the world. Other people go, Gene Mulva Hill got it done. He was a visionary who didn't let mere rules and laws get in his way. And I don't want to I don't want to tell you which side is right. I don't think either side is right. I think I think this movie um, says a lot about you, depending on what, what you think about it at the at the end there. Yeah. Uh, so no, there's no there's no call to action, but it, it's a movie designed to make us make us think about how things are different now than they used to be, for better or for worse. Absolutely. I'd like to talk a little bit about the background and sort of the making and financing of this film and getting a buyer for mm -hmm. it because I know that was something that was very hotly discussed in the Reddit. Uh, forum r slash filmmakers and it's where i discovered uh this film and i'm so glad i did and, and you know connected with you um so sure. you know you got this it's a, an hbo max exclusive right but the the road to kind of getting this film sold was not you know a clear-cut easy one you tried to get at sundance and sundance didn't accept it and you had to kind of shop the film around tell me a little bit about that experience oh what, what makes you think sundance accept no no we um you know we, we started making this movie as um an independent movie. We, we submitted the Sundance, but we submitted like a very early cut that I, you know, that mm -hmm. I didn't think they would accept. That was never really the path or the goal. Uh, you know, our, our, our path, our, our, our plan from the get go was to make a, a great movie by ourselves that we knew people would love. And yeah. I knew something would happen. Maybe that's a little delusional and insane, but I had enough confidence in the subject matter. I had enough confidence in, uh, both myself and my collaborator, Chris Charles Scott, uh, that we could make something that was that was good and that people would want to see. And once we started shooting interviews, being in the in the room with people and um, and hearing their stories, I you know I've interviewed so many people as a journalist, or like hundreds, hundreds, thousands of people, and you know there were a half dozen interviews during this that I have felt I have felt more than I felt during any other interviews I've ever done in my life. You know, I've laughed more. I've cried more. I've, I've never otherwise in my life had to fight back tears in the middle of an interview room. That, that never happened to me before, but it did while making this movie. I've never been in an interview room where I had to, you know, almost remove myself to keep from interrupting the shot because I was laughing so hard. You know, like all of, all of those things happen. And we wanted to make a movie that was great, I hope we did, uh, and then we, you know, we wanted to take it out there as a whole thing, and and we did, and we were really lucky that we found these incredible partners, at HBO Max, and I honestly, this is going to sound really like trite or whatever else, but like I, I can't say enough good things about them and the way they operate and as, as creative partners, like they, there was no, you know, you hear all sorts of horror stories about like studio notes or corporate intervention and stuff, and it just wasn't the case with them. They were. They, they, there was something about the movie. Like they, I think, immediately latched onto the same things about the movie we did, and understood, I think, uh, why this would be an interesting subject matter to people, not just in the New Jersey area, which is some, you know, when you're talking to people, some people might be like, oh, why is this of any interest to anybody who didn't grow up in New Jersey? And like, no, this is not about New Jersey. This is about the 1980s, but more importantly, this is about uh, 
you know, how, how the same thing in life can cause you immense joy and immense pain. And I think they got that. And it was really great working. It was just really great working with them. I mean, I don't, it's, making a film is hard. Selling a film is hard. It's always hard. It's always, always hard. We're, I don't want to say lucky, but we're really lucky. We're really lucky. And I think, but the, but the luck doesn't come from, you know, pulling a number out of a hat. The luck came from identifying a topic and characters that were just irresistible. Is what yeah, was. No, absolutely. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about your co- uh, the director of the film, Tris Charles Scott. Um, you know, sure. as co-directors, what what are, what role do each of you play on the film project? Uh, you know, how does that sort of work, and what do you think he brought and lent to the film that perhaps you didn't, or how do you each play off your strengths? Sure. So it's it, you know, I, I'm a print journalist by background. If you said to a print journalist, <laughs> "Go make a movie," yeah. uh, they would have a very hard hard time doing that. I needed a collaborator who just knew what he was doing with film more. You know, I'm I, I think I'm smart enough to know what I don't know. Oftentimes, yeah. um, and you know, I, I was the guy who'd been living in this world for nearly a decade, who'd been accumulating sources, who'd been accumulating stories, who'd been trying to tell this story, and uh, just you know, over a year and a half ago, maybe like last April, I was visiting uh, Las Vegas uh, for some work stuff, and Chris lives in Vegas, and we were getting a drink and just kind of catching up. He's an old friend, and he's he's a really great filmmaker who. Uh, had primarily done some movies about kind of like Ken Burns-style documentaries about uh, various cities in America, really interesting movies about like Waco, Texas and Shreveport, Louisiana. Um, and he, I knew he was just a really good executor. Like I knew he had a, had a really strong vision whenever he approached the topic and knew how to make it happen and knew how to make it happen in a way that was just nimble, uh, not bloated and kind of worked with my own sort of run and gun ethos in, in the things I approach to, I approach. And we're getting together and he's just like, why haven't you done this yet? Why haven't you made this movie? Why haven't you done anything bigger? And kind of right then and there, we decide we're going to do it. And just over a month later, we were rolling cameras. And it was ended up being really interesting and I think really great collaboration because I'd been living in this world for so long that it was very possible I could have lost sight of what was interesting about it to an outsider. And he was that outsider. He was the one who didn't know anything about Action Park. He could approach yeah. the story with fresh eyes and go, that's crazy. That's interesting. That's right. whatever. And so in the story, so if you actually watch the movie, um, you know, you can kind of see, I, I, I mean, this is a little uh, bloviating here, but maybe, you know, the, the sort of legend of the Haunted Mansion, the ride at Disneyland, Disney World, is that there are these two Imagineers uh, who had very competing visions about what the, mo- what the ride would be. One wanted it to be hilarious. One wanted it to be scary. And that tension is what makes it such a unique and interesting ride, the shift between hilarious and scary. And I think to some degree that the differing points of view that we brought to this project kind of show through in, in that manner. Not so much the tension between hilarious and scary, although that tension does exist in the movie, but more that I was the person who was really in the weeds and was focused on the, on the story and the characters. And he was the person who's like, no, so that this is a story about growing up in the 1980s. This is a story about how things are different. This is a story about, uh, you know, because he, he had that childhood. We're just left to your own devices. You're running around. And I yeah. think he understood that what Action Park really was, was this hyper-distilled version of a latchkey kid era that no longer exists, that many people miss and many people are absolutely frightened of. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, you all captured that very well. And I saw that over and over again, you know, again, with the talking about the the general, you know, anyone could do anything they wanted. You can kind of create your own rules and whatnot, or no rules, and that was very, uh, I think, well explored. How was the film financed? Uh, I, I know there was mention on the Reddit about being privately financed, and I was just curious, you know, why choose that route over self-financing or group or Kickstarter or, you know, going to a studio uh, and it, pitching it? It actually, it, it actually was self-financed. I'm not sure oh, okay. which Reddit that you're referring to. Um, but it, but it actually was self financed, uh, you know. So so we we made the movie completely ourselves at first, oh, wow. um, okay. you know, before uh, HBO Max jumped on board. Yeah. Well, maybe that's what you meant by private finance, because I think <laughs> sure. I think private could be like a private investor. But I guess maybe that's kind of. No. Yeah. Yeah, and I think you know when you start making a documentary, it, it, you you know, there's different ways of of making it. You can either. Uh, sell an idea to a financer, whatever it is, but we made a movie in which people had sweat equity. 
you know, yeah. in which um, everybody from the editors to directors of photography to our composers um, jumped onto a project because they liked the project and we didn't know where it was going to end up. And that made it just, I think, very personal for all of us, uh, very fun and collaborative for all of us. And also, I think, it really shows in the movie. You know, this is a movie where our editor would be up every night until like four in the morning just yeah. trying to chisel it into something better and better and better and perfecting it. He wasn't just like punching it, you know. And yeah. and I think to like I think that really shows just the craft and the love and the care that came through with, from a team, a, a small team that really wanted to make something special. And yeah, no, absolutely, it absolutely shows. You know, one thing that I've not had to deal with in in my sort of trying to filmmaking adventure too much is having to like get a lot of like resources and material. And this documentary uses a lot of old footage from, I assume, park goers and the company and other sources like that, not to mention news clipsing, clippings and whatnot. Can you talk a little bit about the process to acquire this old footage and, and sort of how do you license it, kind of what goes on behind the scenes there? Yeah, it's, you know, when you're dealing with uh, people's old home movies a lot, uh, it's really, a lot of it was as simple as kind of putting up a bat signal and saying, send us your home movies, <laughs> send us your videos, send us your photos. We didn't really know what would come in, and we got some just really amazing, amazing footage that had never been seen by anyone, uh, showing off many of the, the park's attractions, and also just the general sense of insanity and chaos. Uh, the most striking piece of footage probably in the movie is, is actual video footage of the looping water slide, the cannonball loop. And the story behind that, and actually had been online for a couple of years prior, but the story about how that footage kind of came to be is, is equally interesting, I think. And, uh, you know, after what it was basically is after I made the, the short documentary a couple of years back, uh, the former director of operations at the park, who I'd spoken to for that, was cleaning out of his garage. And he found this old VHS tape in his garage that said Action Park on it, like a handwritten label. Popped it in. Lo and behold, it was uh, a lot of just footage of him walking around the park with a video camera filming attractions that otherwise, to the best of my knowledge, there's no known video of. And at the very end of it, there's a couple shots of people actually going down that looping water slide. Wow. And that was really important because the, the slides, the, the fact that the slide was actually in operation was, again, something that people didn't believe. It was kind of viewed as a myth. And the video footage was of that, I think, said this is real not only is this real but everything else in this movie is real a lot of the other footage was sent to us by people some of it came from me just finding footage people had, had posted somewhere and reaching out to them and asking you know yeah. it's amazing how uh open people oftentimes are uh, about things like that uh so just a lot of i love your home movies can we use them can we use them kind of stuff um, and then there were uh, a lot of news clips from back in the day there was an amazing um, Headbangers Ball episode from the old MTV show that was shot entirely at Action Park with with Allison Chains the band, and that's just awesome because it's Allison Chains and Headbangers Ball, and they're just like talking about that. That doesn't look safe. <laughs> that ride doesn't look safe over there. Mm -hmm. um, and and you know we, all this footage is super important because the movie you want to feel like a time capsule. Yeah. You want it to feel like you had just popped in a VHS tape of your memories and it was all kind of coming to life. You want a movie that allow people to sort of live in this era and hopefully when people want to rewatch so that they can return to this era. You know, I, I came off after watching the film thinking like, okay, this is the definitive action park documentary, right? Like I'm sure someone could probably yeah. examine it a decade from now and maybe there'd be different resources and material, different stories. But I thought like you perfectly captured what it meant to be the park. And, um, you know, I think you did a great job there. You know, have you seen any other documentaries about the park? I know there was like Defunct Land and some other folks who've been, you know, doing videos and stuff. Have you seen those? And how do you, what do you think of them? Yeah, I've seen all of them. Um, you know, those those are, are web videos. First of all, Defunct Land's awesome. I just got a shout out. Oh, yeah, to they're great. Land. They're like one of my absolute favorite YouTube channels ever of all time. Um, so, you know, I, I had made a that, that short documentary about Action Park a number of years ago. Uh, I think that was actually probably like the first one that, that really went in-depth into the topic in any meaningful way. And a bunch of others followed, but most of them uh, really just kind of hit the same legendary mythological points, the things that are in the Wikipedia page. There was just right. a dearth of journalism. There was a dearth yeah. of journalism. 
um, none of them were talking to anybody at all, really. Um, and and I and and that to me seemed like such a missed opportunity. And I, I you know, this is the first documentary, the first the first feature documentary about Action Park. I mean, it's it's a very different beast than the web shorts that are out there, as awesome as many of those are. Right. And we hope it's something different. I understand, you know, looking online, people are like, oh, why do we need this? There's some web shorts. I encourage you to watch the movie. I, I really don't think you'll, you'll, you'll question that once you see the movie. Absolutely. You know, with this doc under your belt, it's another achievement in your long list of achievements. What's next for you? Uh, oh, hopefully, hopefully some more documentaries. I mean, I had such a good time making this movie. It was, uh, it was fun. It was just so fun. It was a world I never got sick of. And I think when you pick a documentary topic, you, you're in that world. You live in that world. And if you pick something very heavy and dark, it can be hard. It can be hard. Uh, Action Park certainly has its share of heaviness and, and darkness, but it also has its share of fun. And the highs and lows of, of, the, of living in this world as a filmmaker are so extraordinary. Hearing people beam and recount their, their absolute favorite childhood memories is something we never really get sick of. Uh, you know, it, it's a topic that all these years later, all of these projects later, like, I'm not sick of talking about. People come up to me and they want to talk about Action Park. I'm in. I'm in, baby. You know, I'm not like, oh, I have to, I have to talk about Action Park. I, I love talking about Action Park. I, I don't think I could ever be sick of this topic. I think it's so fun and so funny and so dark and frightening and all of that that, like, how could you be sick of it? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think the, everything flowed very quickly, and I was constantly, I was intrigued by the whole movie going through. Like, there was no part of it where I was, like, not interested. So I think the editor did a great job pacing it, kept me going yeah. the whole time. So it was very well paced. You know, what would you tell, like, an aspiring filmmaker, aspiring documentary filmmakers who obviously haven't reached your level yet, haven't gotten something, you know, like, I've done some short films, but I haven't done a full-length film, and I know many people, you know, strive to be, you know, published and have their theater, you know, movie shown on a platform or a theater. What would you tell that aspiring filmmaker? Well, yeah, sure. I mean, it's all about finding the right subject and the right characters, and that isn't something that necessarily has to cost any or a lot or whatever money. You know, it's if you can find the right person and throw a camera on them, you can make an incredible story and you can do it yourself. There's really no reason you need to wait for somebody. I mean, it's so cliche. Just make it yourself. But I think it's true. It's true. <laughs> I mean, look at some of look at some of the great movies that are out there. Like my friend um, Stephen Morris made that Netflix documentary about Amanda Knox. That's just a camera on a couple people. That whole movie, right. you know, and it was nominated for an Emmy. Yeah. Uh, if you look at like. Uh, Earl Morris, The Fog of War, just a camera on one guy, you know? Um, it's really, you don't need, I think a lot of people feel like their movie is never done, it's never done, it's never done, and they're searching for a story, and they're searching for a story. I think, though, that oftentimes you can do that. If you're lucky, you can film something for five years and then find a story and edit. But if you're trying to get something made that you feel good about, that you think people are going to watch, Find a character or story that you know um, that you have unique access to. I think is absolutely key. Um, you know, I always, you know, I, I come from the world of journalism. I can't tell you how many doc ideas I have just from my other journalist friends who have been working specific beats or living in specific worlds and specific stories and have these these stories out there that that should be told. Where do you? What do you know? Like, what world do you know? Who do you know? Who's that weird person you met who nobody else has ever talked to? Like, it doesn't cost money to throw a camera on a person. And if you can get some amazing tape from somebody telling a story that takes you into unexpected places or makes you feel something that you don't expect to feel, like, that that's really all you need. That's all you need. That's great. That's Thank my advice. You. <laughs> great yeah. advice. No, I'm, I'm listening to, I'm, I'm in a course right now for documentary filmmaking, and that's one of the, the big pieces of advice that the instructor says is, you know, find a journalist because they're the ones who are hunting down stories and having to create stuff out of thin air. And, you know, you can usually hopefully leverage um, them for potential documentary uh, ideas yeah, and prospects. And, and I, I thought about this. A lot. I, I feel like I'm so lucky as a journalist that I found somebody who knew how to make documentaries. We kind of team up. And I feel like it's 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 a shame how disconnected the world of traditional journalism is from the world of documentary filmmaking. Um, you know, I know so many really high level award winning, amazing journalists who have ideas who have stories that would make incredible incredible documentaries they don't know where to go 
you know? So if you know how to make a movie, find that journalist, man. Like, read the, read the, read newspapers and look for that person or magazines or websites and look for cool stories and find that one person who knows that story better than anybody else. Because what that person can oftentimes bring to the table is, yes, like, they know the contours of the story great, but they probably have all the sources lined up. They probably have all the archival material. They probably have everything you need to make the movie kind of waiting to execute. And if you can find the right person to execute with, I mean, it's like a, it's a dream team there. Absolutely. You know, you had a lot of great animated segments during the film. Uh, How did you choose the artist, and what do you think the animated segments added to the overall film? Yeah, so uh, thank you for asking about the animation. They were done by a really great guy named uh, Richard Langberg. And the this idea, okay, so I was dealing, before we knew how much archival footage we would have, before we knew how much video we would have actually showing these rides, I, I thought it would be so cool to to animate them, to bring them to life. And I had this idea, like two two key parts of this movie came to be kind of at the exact same time. I was driving out to Vernon, New Jersey, where, where the park was, uh, to meet with some folks to kind of basically try to convince them to be in the movie. And uh, on my my Spotify, on my phone, the David Bowie song, um, All the Mad Men, came on. And this song is our, is our closing credit song in the end. And I hear these lyrics, and the lyrics are, I can fly, I can break my arm, I can do me harm. And I'm like, man, this guy's singing about Action Park in 1970. It's a song about breaking your arm and doing harm, and it's got this darkness to it. And then I just sort of visualize, and at this point I thought maybe it'd be like a mini-series with opening credits or something. And I just visualize like kind of opening credits that was a song playing while schoolhouse rock animations that, you know, conjunction, junction, but instead of a train, it would be a looping water slide. Like, the whole thing just like kind of came to my head while this David Bowie song played. And I'm like, man, like, that style of animation, that Saturday morning in the mid-1980s, nostalgic, Sesame Street, Schoolhouse Rock, all those, those things, it just really takes you back. And it has that same sense of whimsy to it, uh, that a lot of these rides did. And we just knew, like, we wanted the animations to feel like you were clicking on your TV in front of a bowl of Fruit Loops in 1986, and this was on. And this is what you were watching, not because it was great, because it was the only thing that would appeal to an 8-year-old on TV, because everything else was adult stuff. Um, and animation is intentionally uh, a little scrappy at points. There's intentional errors in it if you watch it. Because if you watch those old Saturday morning cartoons, a lot of times there's there's problems, you know, like uh, editing issues between frames. So we have some of that in there that I think some people might notice. Um, and, and we hope that we hope it was effective. We hope it was an effective way of both bringing some of the stories to life that we don't necessarily have video footage of, and also capturing just like the spirit of, of what it was. Yeah, things like uh, you're not going to capture video footage of uh, the tanks shooting f- flaming uh, tennis balls. No. Well, we have video of the tanks, just the, the cameras weren't rolling when the flaming tennis balls right. were, were being fired. Oh, man. Could you imagine, like, if Action Park existed now with the, the age of cell phones and GoPros? I mean, you would have, you'd be awash with footage from every single angle of every single thing people were doing. That'd be crazy. Yeah. Well, I mean, the park is open under a different name now, and a fair number of the original attractions are, are still there. But okay. the atmosphere of the, the chaos, that's not there. So you're unlikely to see just fights breaking out everywhere you look like you would have back in the old days yeah you mentioned the music that plays at the end and obviously there's a, a great run of music throughout the whole film can you talk a little about uh how you pick the music artist musical artist for the film and and how you set yeah. the tone of the documentary with that music so so the music was primarily done by a, a duo uh, known as the holiday brothers who are old friends of mine from high school I went to high school with and uh they're just an incredible incredible and innovative musicians. They do all sorts of interesting things, sort of mix music and technology. They got a fair bit of attention a number of years back for these experiments they were doing with location-specific music. So you'd have a phone and basically an app, and you'd walk around, say, the National Mall in Washington, D.C., or Central Park in New York, and the music would change depending on your location. Um, so you'd walk by, like, the carousel in Central Park, and you'd hear the sounds of horses galloping as part of the music. And they're just so effective at creating uh, transportive soundscapes. 
they're wonderful people who I've known forever. And uh, when I started working on this project, it was they're the first and only people I called up. I'm like, you guys want to do this? And and they they were they were in, and I was so 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 glad they were. Uh, and and really, you know, my only direction to them was take me back in time. You know, like make it feel like we're going back into the 1980s. And it was inspired a lot. The, the soundtrack was inspired a lot by sort of the synth-heavy soundtracks that you'd find in, like, Beverly Hills Cop or The Thing or, like, Halloween. Uh, those kind of old, creepy synth soundtracks that, that were really popular in 80s movies. Like, you know, Friday, the, not Friday, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street had a, better, had a good one. Um, you know, Stranger Things kind of played with similar ideas, I think. But we really wanted people... We wanted the, the, the music to help it kind of feel a little bit like a dream, the movie. We wanted the music to, to, to really just take you back in time. And I, I just think they did an incredible, incredible job. You know, let me ask you from a behind-the-scenes perspective on the sound design, did they score the documentary like you would score like a film, or did they take and create music, which was then created in the edit and added to the film that way? They, they scored it as if they're John Williams with an orchestra in front of Star Wars, you know? Wow. Uh, he gave them sections, and they they built the music around it. Wow. You know, they 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 synced it. And, and that was, you know, that's it's not always an easy process. I think the no. way a lot of films and documentaries are made is you get some cues and you slot them in best you can. Uh, we really wanted this movie's music to feel specific, and we wanted it to feel like, every second of the movie the music was written for that second of the movie which is not the easiest way to do things obviously it's just not the easiest way but i think it paid off um i mean music is such an important part of this movie i think if you took away the music the movie would would just not hit it would just not hit. it's like you probably you know it's like watching star wars without the score like it would just be a bunch of people shooting blasters at each other it wouldn't it, would, it wouldn't hit and uh you know, we didn't do it the easy way, but I think we did it the right way. Yeah, no, it's interesting because I think so many of us who, you know, are aspiring filmmakers or put stuff out there on YouTube and stuff will kind of build our edit to the music, right? We'll build it to the beats. And it must have been difficult, like you said, for your editor to find those beats without any music. I mean, did they use a temp track or they just kind of build it silently? Yeah, you know, so, so the initial edits were done with temp tracks uh, of, of, for sure. And there were sort of, you know, things that we would then send to the composers as inspiration. Like, mm -hmm. this is sort of the feel we're going for, but we want you to do your own thing. Right. And when we were doing the edits, the initial edits, we weren't really building it to the temp tracks. We were more building it about what we, how, we wanted the, how we wanted the beats to unravel, how we wanted the beats to go. And then the Holiday Brothers would accentuate that with, with, with their music. Um, it was, I mean, they did such a good job, <laughs> really, just beside myself. And it was, it was a really great and collaborative process because our, one of our editors, Michael Garber, just an amazing editor, amazing guy too, uh, he is also really old friends with our composers. So we were all able to work really, really closely together. We're editors constantly in contact with our composer, constantly getting kind of updates of the, of the cues. So if a scene changes, for example, they can make tiny little tweaks and adjustments that make it hit hard. Because, you know, you're editing up until the last minute. Music isn't necessarily, a, you know, composing music isn't necessarily an instant process. Yeah. Uh, but they had a really amazing, uh, fortuitous workflow that allowed the music to be produced kind of in harmony with the edit. That's good. Uh, that's very important. Yeah. yeah. Once you kind of lock that edit and you give that film to the composer, you're kind of committing yeah. to your edit there, and then it's like, uh, let me tweak yeah. a few things. And they, were, uh, no. they made changes right up until the last minute. Yeah. That's and there great. Was, there was some of that. There were you know, constantly up until the moment, moment the movie ships. You're, you know, it's never done. <laughs> you know, yeah. Where like it's it's so hard to say this movie's done, but you're like, oh, there's that one thing I want to change. Um, and up until the very very last moment, the Holiday Brothers were we're still tweaking with us and still making tiny, tiny changes. And they work so quickly and they're so professional and they're so good and they're so committed and so passionate that we were able to make it work. If we were working with some outside composer who we just kind of hired to do a job and they were then clocking out and doing another job and we didn't really know them, I don't think any of that would have been possible. Right, no, absolutely. You definitely need that kind of close relationship uh, for that type of uh, yeah. workflow. 
Yeah, no, you made me think about the time I did a couple short films, and I remember rendering the video the night before we were supposed to premiere in the theater. I was like, oh, it's a little dangerous, but, you know, that's kind of the life uh, of we, we filmmakers. Play, we live dangerously in that regard in this movie. <laughs> I mean, up until, like, there's one shot in the movie. Uh, it's a photo where this, like, teenage girl shows off her alpine slide burns. Mm-hmm. It's such yeah. an incredible shot. And it's so memorable, yeah, because she has this big smile on her face. Right. And to me, it captures everything about Action Park. She is clearly wounded, clearly injured, and she has the biggest smile on her face. That that came in, like, <laughs> I mean, two days before this thing shipped, and we wow. had, I was like, we have to get this in. I don't care what we have to get this in uh and, and and you scramble and you stay up and you, and you get it in and you make the changes that are necessary and i think that you know just having a team that is willing to be flexible like that if we weren't if, if my relationship with my editors and our composers and everybody who worked in the film was different than what it was none of that would have been possible just none of that would have been possible you know, you bring up an interesting aspect, right? So let's say, you know, obviously this film gets wide release, which it will, and a lot more people see it, and perhaps it'll inspire other people to send unknown footage to you. Could you see yourself creating, like, a director's cut, the Snyder cut, so to speak, of, uh, of this film in the future, or maybe a follow-up or, you know, like an after-show type thing with new footage? Could that be something think- you might see in the cards? I mean, I think this is our uh, this is our director's cut in many ways. I think it's you know HBO was such a HBO Max was such such a great partner. They they weren't really uh, pushing us in directions we didn't want to go. They yeah. weren't really making us make any compromises. They they you know this is a this is a challenging movie. It's a challenging movie that I think a lot of people might want this movie to be nothing but the fun games that it is. And it's not. There's a darkness and there's a sincerity and there's a sadness to it. And, uh, and, and, and maybe that's at the expense of some of its commercial, like, commercial, commercialability because I think it's, it's going to be hard for some people to watch. It really is. Um, and HBO Max was a great creative partner who embraced it. They didn't push us away from it. While working with them, I think they were just, like, they know what they're doing. They're so good at helping us make the tiny tweaks that we know needed to be made, but when you're like so attached to one little thing, you have a hard time cutting it. And once you cut it, you're like, I'm so glad that's gone. <laughs> I'm so glad that's gone. And I don't, I don't think there is another cut of this movie that we made. I think this movie wants to be the brisk 90 minutes it is. We could have made this a three-hour movie. We could have made this mm-hmm. a six-part miniseries. You know, okay. I think it would have suffered. I don't think it would have been as good. Okay. Well, yeah, I was. Yeah, there's lots, probably lots of great stuff on the cutting room floor. I have to imagine, and that's probably another yeah. thing. Like, how do you like, you know, get this down? Were there any parts that you're like, wish you could have kept in, but you know, ultimately you had to sacrifice it for the pacing. Yeah, I mean, these were all sacrificed for the pacing. It was sacrificed for the betterment of the movie. There's a lot of things in the movie that, like, on their own in isolation, I thought were just great moments. You know, but in the grand scheme of things, once you zoom out, they don't work. They don't work in telling your story. They don't work in your arc. They drag the movie. They drag the movie back. They they slow it down. Like this movie has a really fast pace to it, and some of the stories we had are unbelievable. But if somebody takes five minutes to tell that one anecdote, you can't really keep that in the movie. It drags right. things down way too much. As cool as that story is, uh, you know, when we spent in this early cuts of this movie, we spent a lot more time in sort of the act one of it in Vernon and in Wall Street, kind of building up to before the park we enter the park. But you realize is like when people see a movie called Class Action Park, they want Action Park. They don't yeah. want thirty minutes of <laughs> Wall Street making uh, and a look at this you know quaint town in Vernon before before the park moved in. All of those things I thought were so fascinating from a journalist perspective, from a storytelling perspective. Uh, but they don't make it a better movie, and I think it's really hard. It's really hard for filmmakers to separate good moments from a good movie is, I think, an important thing. Because any of these things on their own would have been just great. But when put together, it made it a worse movie. Yeah, absolutely. You know, your movie, or actually your short film, inspired the film Action Point, which was a giant Knoxville movie, yeah. or, or led to the inspiration for it. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? Did you work with Johnny on his film at all? Did you have a cameo? Were, were you involved in that at all? Or is it just purely inspiration? Uh, <laughs> Perhaps a it was, it was consulting purely inspiration. role? I was told it was... Yeah, and I was told it was a direct inspiration. I know some people from the from the park literally told me that 
uh, Knoxville's producer sent him my short, and then they were like, <laughs> we got to make a movie about this. Uh, I had nothing to do with that movie. I went to go see it. Um, I think it was, it was just a very different movie than this. I think, uh, you know, when I first when I first heard it was coming out, I, I was worried that it might, you know, I'd always kind of wanted to do something bigger about Action Park, and I was worried that that might, that might be the definitive Action Park project. There might not be much room left for something else. Uh, fortunately for me, it was, it was just highly fictionalized. It wasn't the same story. It was, yeah. um, you know, it was a comedy, a, a stunt comedy, which is right. what Giant Axel does so well. And, it, it, and I think I was, I was somewhat relieved that it was so removed from the true story that there was so room to tell the true story. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, you know, you mentioned the Wall Street portion. It made me think there was a couple of clips, like you have a clip from, you know, the the movie with um, Giant, you know, not Giant, Leonardo DiCaprio, other things like that. Wolf of Wall Street, yeah. Wolf of Wall Street, thank you. What was the process like in, in licensing? Obviously, you got the, the home movies and stuff from people who are very passionate about, the, the, but how do you get, like, the yeah. licensing of the professional films and stuff like that? Oh, a lot of those uh, are various doctrine um, and, uh, you know, clear by lawyers who mm-hmm. say we can use this many seconds of it in this context and it's okay. Right. Uh, you know, and those, I, I think, you know, some of those clips I think are important because they, it allows you to convey a lot of information very, very briefly. If I want, if I had, you know, just the go in from scratch and explain people what penny stocks were and the cultural significance of them, it would be boring and it would drag off and it would take minutes. So it would take time to do but when you show five seconds of Wolf of Wall Street, people instantly go, oh, yeah, penny stocks, Wolf of Wall Street, I get it. And then you can move on. It's just it's efficiency of storytelling. Uh, we use a number of clips from 1980s movies when we are trying to you know, basically establish how this era was different in terms of kids going on adventures outside of the worried eyes of attentive parents. You know? And I think you can say that to somebody, but then you can be like, no, you know what this is. This is E.T. This is the Goonies. This is the Breakfast Club. This is Stand By Me. And it just conveys so much information so, so quickly. Um, you know, we have this kind of shared cultural consciousness. We have these shared cultural touch points and reference points that we all can refer to as something being like that. And I think good documentaries use those effectively while, of course, making something new. You're not, you're not making a clip show of, of other people's stuff. Uh, but, you know, a couple seconds from some of these movies tells you so much information and also evokes so much emotion. That scene in particular, it's like the 1980s, uh, you know, how, how Action Park was like a 1980s movie, I think is one that's speaking to some people who have seen the movie. That's the one where they nod the most, where they, it transports them back. And I think that's really, really helped by the music as well from the Holiday Brothers that's designed to feel like a little dreamy or a little nostalgic, a little... A little that's a real at that point. You know, in thinking about Action Park, I, I was trying to think of, you know, the park. Could, could it have continued to exist today had it been <laughs> safe and, and well run with a appropriate, you know, well-trained staff? But then I thought, well, if it was safe and well run, would it be this icon that it is, right? Would it be so well known yeah. and have this history and, and whatnot? And then I started to think, well, in that case, I mean, considering the death and the misery and the pain it caused so many, you know, should it have even existed in the first place? You know, in that, was it worth it for it to exist in the sort of way it was where it caused pain and death and, just, you know, suffering? Was it worth it for that? You know, was it worth it for what it was? I, I'm, am I making sense with that question? I don't know. It's like, should it have You're, existed that, in the first that's place? The that's the central question of the movie, I think. And it's one that I think a lot of people are going to have very different takes on. Um, I, I, that, that I think is a central question of the movie. Like, was this way of growing up, was this way of operating with lax regulation and sort of devil may care attitude, was it good overall? And clearly there's good parts of it and bad parts of it. And clearly we lose something and we gain something with it going away. And, and I, I, and I, what I love about talking to people after I see the movie is seeing kind of where they come out on that. And that to me, that, that is the central question of the movie and it's not one and, and by design we, we don't come down on the side and I think I've, I've read some reviews where people like the film <laughs> the film doesn't know if it's celebrating <laughs> or, or demonizing it. it's like no 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 we're doing neither <laughs> we're doing neither we yeah. very deliberate we know we know what we're doing here um, this is this that's the that's the debate that's the question and the fact that after watching the movie you don't know where you stand I think is a beautiful thing 
that, that you know, we don't want a movie where people know exactly what to think. We want a movie where people wake up and they go, I, I don't know. I just don't know. And, and I, and it, hopefully we accomplish that. No, I think you did. And, you know, again, it's like it's a double-edged sword with a topic and a subject like this because on the one hand, nobody's crying for a documentary about Knott's Berry Farms or Dollywood or any of these other oh, safe... Oh, I would love a documentary about Knott's Berry Farm or Dollywood. Are you kidding me? Those places are awesome. Knott's Berry Farm has the first dark ride anywhere in the country, and you can still go on it, and it's awesome. That is a cool park. Uh, Dollywood is awesome. You got to go to Dollywood. I would, I would absolutely, I would tell you, maybe that'll be my next movie. I'll make a movie. If yeah. Dolly Parton got on board, I would make a movie about Dollywood. Oh <laughs> All right, there we I go. We're totally going to see that. the, the yep. theme park series, the, the full-length, feature-length, defunct land, so to speak. But not defunct, because <laughs> Dollywood. Dollywood is still active and going. Hopefully Dollywood will never, hopefully it will never be defunct. Hopefully it will be there forever. No, no, I love Dollywood. I've been there. It's a beautiful park. Um, kudos yeah. to Dolly Parton for putting it together. But again, in the pantheon of like, you know, filmmaking companies that are looking like people see Action Park and that's got obviously the, you know, all the underlying, um, you know, deceit and lying and offshore bank accounts or whatever. Not, that's probably not. But, you know, what I'm saying the, the insurance company that was a fraud, you know, all these sort of underlying insidious issues, right, that kind of make it sell as the documentary it is. And it's like, you know. It existed in a time, right? And it couldn't exist today. There's no way something like this could exist today. So it was kind of captured no in way. time. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's no way. And, you know, but Action Park was one of the things I think we, we hope we convey in the movie is that one of the reasons it was the way it was, one of the reasons it had these strange experimental rides is it was one of the very first water parks in the world. You know? Yeah. Like, today you go to a water park and you kind of know what you're going to get. There's a couple sort of, like, off-the-shelf uh, rides that basically every water park's got the ride that does this, and every water park's got the ride that does that. You know what you're getting. Action Park wasn't like that. Action Park, nobody knew what a water park was, and they kind of had to invent it as they went along, as we say in the movie. Um, it was, I think, the third water park in the country. I mean, wow. before this, you had, like, old-style swimming holes, and, and, and actually my, my family, my mother actually grew up in a water park in the 1950s, the early type of water park. And then Wet n' Wild came along, and Schlitterbahn and Action Park, those are the first three water parks. And each of them was run by this larger and life, very interesting, very different personality. Gene, I think, the guy who ran Action Park was the most interesting, the most larger in life, the most fascinating, probably also the least known of these people. Uh, you know, Wet n' Wild and Schlitterbahn are still very much staples of like the water park world. But what made Action Park different was that it was just experimental. People were discovering what a water park was. They were feeling their way into it. There's a lot of rides over there that you that you see them as like dead ends in the evolutionary tree of water park and ride design. You know, you're like that. That's an interesting idea. Uh, it never really worked, right? <laughs> it, it kind of disappeared. And many of those rides are still there at the park. Like you can still jump off a 20 foot cliff. You can still the the Colorado River ride, which was a raft ride that way more insane, way, way, way more insane than any raft ride you've ever been on. It's still open, only today when you ride it, you have to wear, like, a catcher face mask because too many people were smashing their faces. Wow. You know? So it's... it's um, but, but, yeah, Action Park, it could never exist today. Of course not. And that's what makes it interesting. And that's what makes it fun for people who went there to then share the stories of Action Park with maybe their kids or people who never went there because people kind of have a sense of disbelief about it all. You said you went there. Did you ever get injured yourself? No, I never got injured. Uh, I was very young, and so most of the, the crazy rides I just couldn't go on, you know? And so they became kind of my own personal myth. You'd see people doing these things, and like, wow, that that's wild. Was that actually real when I look back at my memories? And, and that was a big part of the impetus for making this movie and researching the topic in general was to understand what was real. Like, what did I see that that was real you know considering your experience with it and all the research you've done on it if you were old enough at the time would you have ridden like knowing everything you know would you ride the rides now or back then Some i should say if you were old enough yeah i mean i don't think anybody who went on those rides really knew how dangerous a lot of the more people knew the park was dangerous i don't think people understood how shoddily built and designed some of the rides were 
and the extreme level of danger that was there. Add that with a 1980s teenager's mentality. Add that with a healthy dose of alcohol. Add that with just a general Lord of the Flies atmosphere of chaos. And I think people really pushed themselves further than they should have. Action Park was an extreme sport masquerading as an amusement park. You know, things like rock climbing, things like skydiving, we understand that they can be dangerous. And so we approach them with a certain level of safety in mind and safety checks. You know, you make sure your rope works. You make sure your parachute works. Action Park was was one of these activities, but in the veneer of an amusement park. And when you go to an amusement park, you have thrill rides. They're designed to simulate scare, the feeling of being in danger. And that's the thrill. And you never think, like, the Tower of Terror at Disney World can actually hurt you. That's part of the thrill is the, the simulation of fear, the simulation of danger. Action Park, though, you have these rides that actually could hurt you. And that's, that's what's so weird and different and interesting about Action Park was that it was basically a collection of extreme sports masquerading as a, as a water park. Cool, cool. Well, I think that's going to bring us to the end of our interview. Thank you so much t- for taking time out to do this for me. I really appreciate it. And all the people who I think are very interested in learning more about you know, Class Action Park and the story behind it. Of course, before I let you go, is there anything else you'd like to add that I didn't think to ask? No, it's great to be here. It's great to chat with you. Uh, it's, it's really great to chat with you. And, you know, the movie comes out this Thursday. Check it out. Awesome. So much. Thank you for your time, Seth. All right. Uh, thank you again, Seth Porges, uh, for being a guest on the show. This has been Around the Lens Interviews. And uh, go check out Class Action Park. It's an awesome film, and I highly recommend it. All right, Seth. Thanks again. Have a great day.